Good morning, everybody. So good to be with you. In the early 1970s, the most powerful music group of modern times broke up. Uh, you can see the strain and the disunity in the Beatles here. And look, look at this. What are they wearing? I mean, that photo could be from 1869, not 1969, don't you think? Look at that. But anyway, look at, the, look at the faces. You can just see the acrimony, the, the, the dislike that is in that photo is really, really heartbreaking. And it had only begun. Lawsuits followed this. Accusations followed their breakup. Probably the most hurtful moment in the breakup of the Beatles came when John Lennon said this in a press conference. And I quote, the only thing Paul McCartney contributed to the Beatles was silly love songs. Silly love songs. Ouch. In response, you know what happened? Paul McCartney wrote a song and he recorded it with his new band that he called Wings. It's titled Silly Love Songs. <laughs> You'd think the people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around me and I see it isn't so. Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. And what's wrong with that, he sang. That became the number one song in the world that year. I want you to look at what Sir Paul said about it in a later interview. He said this. Over the years, people have said, oh, he sings love songs. He writes love songs. He's so soppy. The nice payoff now is that a lot of the people I meet are at the age where they've just got a couple of kids and have grown up a bit, settling down, and they'll say to me, I thought you were really soppy for years, but I get it now. I see what you were doing. Close quote. Now, you're surely wondering in your um, Ringo Starr imitation, why are you bringing that up here now? Uh, great question, Ringo. Thank you for asking. It's because our Bible text today is about a seemingly silly love song. That's how it's labeled in the Bible, a love song. We are studying a bunch of poems that were collected by a group of Jerusalem temple workers. They were called the Sons of Korah. Um, these songs of wonder by the band Sons of Korah, they deal with human emotion. These are all songs about human emotion. I want you to look again at our series premise. This is why. Why are we studying this? Here's the premise. God made humans with emotions. And we need proper outlets to investigate, think through, and enjoy our emotions. The Psalms of the Sons of Korah run the gamut of human emotion. These songs draw the believer into the brilliant displays of the glorious range of God's wonder-worthy attributes channeling our human emotions in context. We need what these songs offer. The wonder of God in every tear, laugh, fear, and joy. All God's people said? Now in Psalm 45 today, that's our text. In Psalm 45, that emotion is romantic love. Look at the introduction. Go to Psalm 45 in your Bible. Let's read the introduction. This, uh, this part written long, long time ago by the rabbis. For the choir director... According to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. First, let's clear away some underbrush. The lilies, uh, that seems to be a tune. It may have been a musical set, how you set the stage for the song. It's referenced three times in the Psalms, the lilies. Masculine appears to indicate a skillful song or a song that inspires skillful living, which is wisdom, right? And this is a love song. As we point out in your notes, take a look in your bulletin you got when you came in today. Or if you're online, we are so thrilled to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, there should be a link from your host there. Go to that and you'll see the headline, It Isn't Silly At All. The love song's not silly at all. I first studied the Psalms sitting at the feet of Dr. Alan Ross. Um, Alan P. Ross was an expert in the Hebrew songs. I didn't... I didn't really appreciate his teaching that. Okay, let me be honest. I thought he was boring as, as all get out. But 
I, I look back now, and his notes are solid gold. It was really great stuff. I wish I had appreciated it more at the time. Here's what he says about Psalm 45. This is a royal psalm celebrating the wedding of the mighty king. The psalm has a lengthy superscription, what we just read, an extended introduction concerning its nature. The song is set to the tune of lilies and is called a wedding song, literally a song of loves. Now, over the past thousand years, many, many Christians, the majority of Christians, have worked really hard to avoid this clear statement that this is a human love song, okay? Many of you who are seminary grads or really experienced in Bible study, you have, you have been taught that this is a messianic psalm, right? And I want to present to you a different point of view today. I think Dr. Ross is correct. I don't think this is a messianic psalm. I, Hebrews chapter 1 references it, but not in that sense. Let me walk you through what I think. What happens is people, even really wonderful, brilliant believers like, like John Calvin, they think that a love song is just too silly to be in Scripture. These scholars feel that there has to be some superior, some kind of hidden meaning or else this wouldn't have been included in the Bible. That's why Calvin wrote this. He said, this song is called a maskil uh, to teach us that the subject here treated of is not some obscene or unchaste amours, but that under what is here said of Solomon as a type. By the way, we don't know this is Solomon, but he was assuming that, and, and many of the rabbis thought that. Under what is uh, said of Solomon as a type, the holy and divine union of Christ and his church is described and set forth. Close quote. Now, many of you know that I really like Calvin. Uh, he's one of my heroes. His work on the Psalms is very useful. However, I must disagree with him here. Two reasons why I think his assumptions are misguided on Psalm 45. Most importantly, there is nothing in this text that suggests that it be treated allegorically. Listen, if you learn nothing else today, please remember this. Whenever Scripture intends you to take a figurative interpretation, to take another layer interpretation, it always makes that clear. The language itself will be figurative, which tells you to take it in a figurative sense, the meaning, okay? It, it will tell you when to do that. It doesn't do that in Psalm 45. Secondly, there's no reason to assume that we can't be taught by a masculine about human love. Yes, of course, all of life is tainted this side of heaven, but that doesn't mean we can't learn and grow in our human loving, right? Paul McCartney really said it best. Love doesn't come in a minute. Sometimes it doesn't come at all. I only know that when I'm in it, it isn't silly. Love isn't silly. Love isn't silly at all. So, underbrush cleared away. Let's fall in love with Psalm 45, a, a love song of humans. Begins with praise for the royal groom. Praise for the royal groom. Read verses 1 and 2. The bride is speaking. My heart is moved by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse 1 declares, you are my inspiration. That's what she's saying. This is universal. The bride is speaking. Now, look, she's either speaking to her groom or it could be she's speaking to his aged father, the king. And she is so inspired by her fiancé that she waxes lyrically. She even says that with him as the subject, she has become a skillful writer. Isn't that precious? Now, I mentioned the rabbis taught that Psalm 45 was about Solomon. Can you imagine being so inspired with your fiancé that you, you speak to the wisest man who ever lived and you're excited about your writing? 
Isn't that funny? Or what if, what if she's speaking to David, his father? Can you imagine being so proud of your verses that you are excited to share them with the greatest songwriter who ever lived? Those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans, this is like Bilbo being excited about his verses in Rivendell. You know, this is just cute. It's so fun. But that's, that's what love does. Romantic love allows us to wax lyrically, unabashedly, because we're so inspired. The, the group Chicago had two hits, two number one hits based on this experience about inspiration. I'm going to play you the start of the better of their two songs about inspiration. Just listen to that whole album. All right. This is universal. All right. The, the, the bride is speaking. You're my inspiration. Billy Joel picked up on this and he sang, what else could I do? I'm so inspired by you. Right. John Legend added, you're my downfall. You're my muse. My worst distraction, my rhythm and blues. Right. These are, these are all just commentaries on the inspiration of Psalm 45 verse 1. And verse 2 goes into details. First, she thinks he's really handsome. Nearly every bride thinks that. My, my sweetheart thinks I'm handsome, for goodness sake, right? Um, and I'm not, so it's just delightful. But look at verse 2. She gets into the real and lasting thing that's really attractive about her man. He is a gentleman. That's what, that's what she means by grace flows from you. The Hebrew word hen, what we, what we translate um, uh, grace or graciousness, it, it, it means favor, grace, graciousness. But get this. At the time this was written, hen had come to mean popularity, this is so cool. This is so cool. Hen is not popularity because of fakeness or political scheming or glad-heading. There are plenty of words in the language for that. No, no, no. Hen is popularity because you are so encouraging and you are so kind to everyone. Everybody likes you because you're so nice. That's hen. Jennifer Rush uh, riffed on this idea. She wrote a modern poem called The Power of Love. Uh, Celine Dion made it a huge hit uh, by beautifully singing lines like this. Your voice is warm and tender, a love I could not forsake. That's hen. Dudes, listen. Gentlemen, listen, please. It isn't his handsome external appearance that matters most. That isn't what brings popularity with people. That's not the therefore. Look, the blessings from God, the therefore... Is because he's a gentleman. What attracts her most is that he speaks graciously like a gentleman. Now, read verses 3 through 5. Mighty warrior, she says, strap your sword at your side. In your majesty and splendor, in your splendor, ride triumphantly in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. May your right hand, the right hand, by the way, this is going to come up a couple of times in the psalm. The right hand in the Bronze Age and even in the Iron Age signifies the place of authority, the place of power. So when somebody's at your right hand, that means they're your... They're, they're your number two. They're your strength. They're your power. So your right hand is your, your place of authority. May your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Your sharpened arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. She's declaring that he should be the warrior. She knows what the, how the scripture puts it. Kings go out to battle. This is a king. She wants her man to be manly. To do what God has equipped him to do, to go to battle, to fight for what's right. And if this groom is Solomon, or what's most likely, if this wedding occurs sometimes after Solomon's reign, then we understand even more of what's meant here. 
In the biblical book, Song of Solomon, the sword is an image. The sword is an image of protecting a marriage. Um, there, there, are, there are two important images that are in Solomon's love song. And by the way, in Song of Solomon, each of these images is talked about in figurative language. So we know to take them in multiple meanings, right? The first one is the night. In Song of Solomon, the night comes up repeatedly. And the night is all of the evil things, all the furies that are trying to tear this relationship apart. The second image is the sword. These armed mighty men who fight to protect that marriage against the terrors of the night. That's why Song of Solomon says this, chapter 3. This is, their, this is the first bridal procession we ever read about anywhere in human history. It's the procession of Solomon and his bride. Behold, it's the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of what, everybody? The night, right? This is really significant. Now look at Psalm 45. The bride is begging her man to lead their home and to be the defender of their marriage. Almost 3,000 years later, there's a Christian band uh, called Sanctus Real. They picked up the concept and, and sang this. I look around, I see my wonderful life, almost perfect from the outside. In picture frames, I see my beautiful wife always smiling. But on the inside, I can hear her saying, lead me with strong hands. Stand up when I can't. Don't leave me hungry for love, chasing dreams, but what about us? Show me you're willing to fight, that I'm still the love of your life. I know we call this our home, but I still feel alone. Close quote. A few years after that, um, Oren Yoel, who's a producer and songwriter, uh, he portrayed the idea this way. He, uh, with a little bit of help from Stacy Bart, uh, wrote a, a song called Adore You, and in that poem, uh, the woman says this, I'm scared, oh, so scared. But when you're near me, I feel like I'm standing with an army of men armed with weapons. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking. In your uh, John Legend, in your John Legend imitation, you're saying, hey, man, good heavens. Uh, Miley Cyrus sang that song, Adoria. I mean, <laughs> can't we turn our attention away from her and toward the Lord? I mean, Miley Cyrus, really, in church? That's creepy. Yeah. Thank you, John. Good question. Uh, glad you brought that up. That is exactly what comes next. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. As we say atop the right side of our notes, the couple pauses here to offer praise to God, right? They tear their eyes away from each other and they look up. About 200 years ago, a little almost 200 years ago, a German theologian named Johann Lange, uh, he showed that this cannot be a reference to the human king. Okay, so you've got people who think it's a messianic song, a psalm, and they may be right, maybe about Jesus. I don't think so. That's not the way the language reads uh, to me. Uh, there are those who think that this is only about a human. I don't think so. Verse 6 is clearly talking about God. Look what Langa says. In the Korahitic Psalms, Elohim, that's what we translate God, Elohim always stands for Jehovah God himself. He's right. Now, that has not stopped some Bible scholars from trying to make the verse part of verse 6 about the human, but it's not. This is directed to God. This is the pause in their wedding, the moment of clarity that is all about God Almighty. One of Dr. Lange's contemporaries was an American, Dr. John Forsyth, a really underrated and underappreciated theologian and thinker, one of the great American thinkers. He was a polymath. Look, look at this. He was only chaplain at West Point. He was also a professor of English literature, rhetoric, geography, history, and ethics, and had degrees in all those. He was a true polymath. Look what he says about verse 6. 
to avoid the obvious ascription of divinity contained in the first clause. Very forced constructions have been proposed, but the natural reading is, thy throne, God, is forever and ever, close quote. This is really important to remember all the time, especially when you're in the throes of strong emotion like romantic love. Remember this, God is in charge. He is the authority who gives blessings to us. James 1 pithily summarizes, read with me responsively. Join me on the underlined verse 17 of James 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, right? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Here's the perspective we've got to have. All good gifts come from God in His time. Now, that achieves three significant blessings in our souls. First, knowing that God is the eternal king promotes appreciation. That's why Orel added this verse in his song. You and me, we're... Just let it go that it's Miley Cyrus, okay? Let it go. It's all right. Just think of the poetry. It's good poetry. You and me, we're meant to be in holy matrimony. God knew exactly what he was doing when he led me to you. The Lord's not an afterthought. He's not something tacked on to our relationship. He is right at the center and we should appreciate that. Just look at your text. Verse 6, the one part that is completely all about the Lord is stuck right in the middle of the song. When we stop and praise God, it promotes appreciation in our souls. We better appreciate Him. We better appreciate our relationships. Praising God also promotes patience. It can be very hard to wait on God's timing, especially in romance. I don't think this has ever been illustrated in a more delightful way than a little song that is written and sung by our Christian sister, Katie Peterson. I want to show you Katie Peterson, The Ring Song. Well, there's a ring around the moon, a ring around the rosy, a ring around my socks that keep my pizza cozy. Well, I'm a single woman and I don't need many things, so why don't my poor little finger got Complicated. For Tommy Lee in second grade, I waited and I waited. I wrote a note on Valentine's and said, check yes or no. He crumpled up my paper, so I punched him in the throat. There's a ring around the moon. He crumpled up my paper, so I punched him in the throat. A ring around my socks that keep my pizza cozy. Well, I'm a single woman and I don't need many things. So why don't my poor little finger got a ring? Lovely song. You can, you can watch it on your own. The Petersons, um, bluegrass, wonderful, godly family. Waiting's hard. It's hard. But, but there's a rich blessing that comes from those who wait on the Lord. When we stop and praise Him, it really does grant us wonderful patience. There's this refrain that's repeated in the Song of Solomon. Um, in the middle of some of the hottest, and I mean sexually, hot sections of that book, this reminder appears. It appears again and again. Catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. Man, this is clever writing. Foxes have sharp teeth that could destroy a, a vineyard. They, they, if, if, if the little foxes bite the vines while everything's in bloom, before the fruit has actually come, and, and then the sap comes out of the vine, then the whole harvest could be ruined. To our dismay... Generations of humans have learned that a lack of patience in romantic love can ruin things. Focusing on God promotes patience. It also provides perspective. 
This king is only going to last one lifetime. Much as she loves him, only the Lord is forever. And that provides some needed perspective. What, whatever we do in this life, it is only a beginning. Marriage, marriage is not some long, hard slog. Not when we view it in light of eternity. If you are a recipient of God's grace purchased through Messiah Jesus, then you are promised an eternity of joy with God. That's what Jesus declared to Nicodemus. Read with me. John chapter 3, verse 15, altogether. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In the context, him is Jesus who grants eternal life to those who trust his death and resurrection. And Peter emphasized this eternal perspective. 1 Peter chapter 5, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for how long, everybody? A little while. To him be the dominion forever. Amen. Look at that. This whole life is only a little while. And just like Psalm 45, 6, we're reminded that God reigns how long, everybody? How long does he reign? Forever. Whatever adventures, whatever struggles we face in our relationships, we are only getting started. This short life is just the beginning of an eternal love. Paul Williams beautifully expounded on this. He wrote a poem called We've Only Just Begun. Uh, it was set to Roger Nichols' music. It became a worldwide hit when the carpenters sang it. We've only just begun to live. White lace and promises, a kiss for luck, and we're on our way. We've only begun. Before the rising sun we fly, so many roads to choose. We'll start out walking and learn to run. And yes, we've just begun. Then he talks about when they get really old. And when the evening comes, we smile. So much of life ahead. We'll find a place where there's room to grow. And yes, we've just begun. Close quote. Perspective. All right, now read uh, the end of verse 6 through verse 9. The scepter of your kingdom, she switches back to the groom here is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia perfume all your garments. From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. This section outlines the blessings for obedience in the groom's life. The groom is exhorted to remember who he is, to remember he is God's man, and he should obey the Scriptures. Three things she points out the Scripture calls him to, to rule justly, scepter of justice, to love good and right, love righteousness, and hate wickedness or corruption, depending on how you translate it. it it's slightly different, but the later statement in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is very similar to the obedience required of the king in Psalm uh, 45. I'd like you to read with me uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, all together. O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you. When one lives that obedience, there are natural blessings that follow. Outcomes aren't guaranteed because God's a sovereign Lord, not a computer program. However, there are normal outcomes. The bride sees four distinct blessings that have come. Because of the king's obedience in these ways, there are four great blessings that have come into his life. He knows joy. He's wealthy. He's sought out by empires, and his mother supports him. Let's go through them one at a time. Anoint is the Hebrew term mashah. Mashah literally means to, to smear something. Uh, it was used of dedications where oil was swiped across a person's forehead in consecration to God. But there's, there's more here. Meshach always has, it always has the idea of knowledge and authority. I think that's why the later words that developed in Hebrew from Meshach, 
They were words that, that we would translate to advise and to reason with wisdom. It always has to do with knowledge and authority. So to be anointed is to be not just smeared with oil, it's to be set aside with certain knowledge. In this case, the groom's obedience has made him know more joy than anyone else, more joy than anyone else at court. He is full of joy. He's also wealthy. I mean, just look at the guy's deodorant, right? Look at those costly spices. His palace is covered in ivory. He is wealthy. That can be a blessing for obedience. The daughters of other kingdoms. Do you see that one? King's daughters among your honored women. That means he's sought by other, by other empires. His wisdom, his anointing makes other kingdoms want to have people at his court. It probably also means they want spies there, but we'll get into that in a moment. The queen mother, the last one. Look at her. She's wearing symbols of authority, gold from Ophir. She stands beside him. Now notice that she is standing as he is seated. That's a sign of subservience. When, when you stand while the king is seated, you're, what that means is she's not trying to usurp his throne. His, his mother is showing everybody at the right hand that all of her considerable power, and it is considerable, is, is given in, in dedication to her son. She supports him. All right? Those are pretty cool blessings. Now, let's leave the groom. Let's get to the procession of the bride. Procession of the bride is told in verses 10 through 15. Um, I want to introduce it this way. There's another Christian brother of ours, a comedian named Tim Hawkins, uh, whose greatest claim to fame is he played baseball at the University of Missouri. Anyway, um, Tim's going to introduce this section for us. This is a routine Tim did about songs that should not be sung at a wedding procession. Okay? These are songs you should not do at a wedding. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. <laughs> you can't always get what you want, but you can try sometimes. You might find you get what you need. Yeah. All right, let's get to the real song that's played for the bride. First thing that happens, she receives some probably unsolicited advice. Verses 10 and 11. Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your Lord. Before a bride walks down the aisle, there is almost always somebody whispering reminders and advice in her ear. It's been true of nearly every wedding of which I've been a part. In Psalm 45, the advice she's given is commit to your husband. This is one of the basic principles in the Bible. Addressed at the very, very beginning, Genesis 2. A man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become what, everybody? One flesh. Girls, notice what is most attractive to the groom here. It is not physical beauty. It is a woman who is all in for him. Listen, a lady who is looking back over her shoulder and considering all her old life, she is decidedly unattractive to her husband. But if you cleave to him alone, he will desire your beauty. Um, Song of Solomon puts it really, really beautifully. Awesome language. Song of Solomon says, your body will please him at all times, even when you're very old. There's another piece of advice before she heads down the aisle. She's told to stand by your man. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. The daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people, will seek your favor with gifts. Here's what's going on. There are other powers that are going to try to use you. Um, here's what you need to know. Look up at the map. Solomon and the other Israeli kings, David and all of, almost all of them, had ongoing long contracts with the country of Tyre and with Hiram. That was the title of the king of Tyre, the 
the king was always, I remember when I first read the Bible, I was like, why are all these guys named Hiram? <laughs> Hiram's like Pharaoh, it's a title. Um, so Hiram, the king of Tyre, they had a, they had a contract together. And, and so what they would do, and they do this with other kingdoms too, but especially with Tyre, they would exchange extended members of their families. Later in the Middle Ages, this was called hostages. Uh, they didn't have a name for it back then. But you would take extended members of your Tyrian family and extended members of your Israeli family, and they would grow up in the other's court. It was based on the very sensible idea that if you got to know people, you're less likely to attack them, right? It was also based on the very diplomatically sensible idea that it's the best way to have good information is to have your own people in that court, right? And especially so that you could influence that court to work what is best for your kingdom, right? That, that's always been the case. And look at your text. The businessmen, the nobles, the wealthy people at court, what are they going to do? Same thing. They're going to give you gifts because they're going to try and buy your influence. Nothing has changed. What do lobbyists do? They try to build relationships with people in power that can further their business, right? Why in the world would you hire the child of a high-ranking government official who knows nothing about your business... Why would you hire that kind of person and put them on your board? Because you want to gain influence with that country for the good of your business, right? This is a serious problem, and it always has been. Now, here's the point. In Psalm 45, if this bride gives in to these forces, she's going to harm both her marriage and her new kingdom. Therefore, she is advised to, to stand by her man. She is not to accept any gifts from any wealthy citizens or from any courtiers outside of the country. Make it clear, show all the world that she loves him. Tammy Wynette and Billy Sherrill wrote a song about this. Uh, it became number one hit in the U.S. and the U.K. Here's their version of verse 12. Stand by your man and show the world you love him. Keep giving all the love you can. Stand by your man. Some of you are old enough to remember that tune. Like most weddings, it seems an eternity before the bride finally gets to walk. At last, she heads down the aisle. Verse 13. In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious. Her clothing is embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she's led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They're led in with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. Rejoice, the bride has come. Look at the descriptions. Glorious, gold, colorful, gladness, rejoicing. It's absolutely stunning. This is why people sometimes enjoy looking at the groom when the bride comes in the back of the auditorium at a wedding because his face is often full of shock and awe. And he rejoices. Along with the whole wedding party, the bride and groom here feel this serious kind of joy that simply cannot be contained. No matter what goes wrong, and something goes wrong with every wedding. No matter what goes wrong, they're rejoicing because the bride has come. Whatever it looks like, it is perfect. Ed Sheeran wrote a song about this. It's not Sons of Korah, but this is pretty fine poetry. Look what Ed Sheeran wrote. When you said you looked a mess, I whispered underneath my breath, but you heard it. Darling, you look perfect tonight. Well, I found a woman stronger than anyone I know. She shares my dreams. I'll share her home. I found a love to carry more than just my secrets, to carry love, to carry children of our own. Close quote. Now, Sharon's last couplet there takes us to our final verses and the bride's blessings for obedience. Look at verses 16 and 17. Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. If she truly leaves her home and stands by her husband as one, she's going to receive the blessings of an amazing legacy. 
Her sons will serve throughout the kingdom. Her offspring will sit on the throne of their father and their grandfather, and she will be remembered. Because she's focused on God and because she has bound her husband, she's going to be famous. It's not what she set out to do, but that's what will happen. My brother and I are each fairly well-known. One of us in business, the other one in ministry. But the biggest long-term result of our fame is our mother's renown. My mom is watching from afar, and she's going to hate me saying this, but it's true. Mom will be remembered as long as probably longer than her boys because with her husband, she greatly made them who they are. The impact that her sons have had has flowed from her decisions to focus on the Lord and make him the center, to be wise, to be obedient. And this is the blessing. Trey, why don't you come on up and help me? You can, you can see this. You can see what I'm talking about in this quilt my mom made. She's also going to be angry I show you this quilt because I think it's absolutely fabulous, but she says it's one of her least favorites because she made so many mistakes on it. I said under my breath, it's perfect. Here, hold it up with me, would you? Okay, so mom made this quilt a couple years ago, gave it to me uh, and to Jana, and it's, um, it's different houses and scriptures about, about homes. So like right here, we've got Proverbs 24.3, by wisdom, a house is built, by understanding, it is established, Right? And look at this one. This is really germane to our discussion here. Um, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household. Isn't that cool? All right, now, thank you, Trey, very much. Give Trey a hand. He didn't plan on that today, and he got roped into work. All right, let's continue. We read verse 27 of Proverbs 31. Let's continue and join me on the underlined text, starting at verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Husband also praises her. Many women have, here's what the husband says, many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor, and let her works praise her at the city gates. Let's pray for those kinds of blessings in our lives, shall we? Pray with me. Father, we pray for obedience, for graciousness, for love in all our relationships. We pray that we will be warriors in our relationships because we are centered on you, Lord. Please. Now, while you're here talking to the God who loves you, let's take advantage of this moment and let's do some confessing. Why don't you confess to God about the ways in which you have not made him the center of your relationships, the center of your life, the center of your home. About how often he's just been a little Jesus dust sprinkled on the top. Father, they may be very good things. I mean, this, it doesn't get much better than this. This couple really establishing their home but anything, anything that takes me out of the centrality of verse 6 is going to lead to dismay. And I am sorry for not making you the center in every way. The loss is mine. Confess this. Why don't you confess this about how you have not fought for love in your relationship? You, you, you may have fought. <laughs> You may have fought for your own defense or fear or to prove you're right. 
or to be dominating, but you haven't fought for love. Lord, I'm sorry for not, um, for not using my sword against the terrors of the night, for those things that would tear up my relationships, and sometimes that terror is me. I pray that whatever it is, it will be attacked and, and retrained so that I fight for love. Father, with my brothers and sisters, I make a commitment. We make a commitment that we will grow. We will grow in our loving relationships by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen.